When the Pilgrims stepped onto the windswept shores of Cape Cod Bay in the cold and forbidding December of 1620, they encountered a landscape that bore the traces of 12,000 years of native settlement. They traveled across the outer cape on well-worn paths that were etched indelibly into the sandy landscape. At clearings in the thick woodland, they discovered fields and gardens covered with the stubble of the recent harvest. Near one of these fields, they dug into storage pits and took away the corn that they found there. This was the homeland of the Wampanoag people. Later that spring, after settlement at Patuxet, now called Plymouth, Squanto approached the pilgrims and began to share with them knowledge of both plants and the planting practices that had provided successful gardens for his ancestors for hundreds of years. But how did the English incorporate Wampanoag practices into their own farming tradition? And in the end, what was the result? What English tools, technologies, and seeds were sought by the Wampanoag? And how did that affect their traditional farming practices? To find answers to my questions, I met with Dr. Fred Dunford, archaeologist and museum gardener, to learn more about Wampanoag and 17th century English agricultural practices and how they shape our understanding and sense of home place. Welcome to the podcast, Fred. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking. So I want to start, you are, in addition to being a gardener here at Plymouth Patuxet and a horticulturalist, uh, you are also an archaeologist. So That's right. how did you marry these three disciplines together to come here to Plymouth Patuxet Museums? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, and I think in ways my grandfather, my mother's father, was uh, responsible for both because he was a farmer and he was an amateur archaeologist. And when I was a little boy, he taught me both about gardening, he showed me his arrowhead collection, and I found my first arrowhead when I was six, and by the time I was 12, I had my own vegetable gardens. So I've always done the two. Mm -hmm. They always were an important part of my life. Um, at times while I was in school, I worked uh, in a nursery, I worked for landscapers, um, but I became an archeologist. You know, In college, I ma majored in anthropology, um, I have a master's and a PhD in anthropology, so I was able to take that love and make a career of it while I had the other as a hobby. And then at one point, the museum I was working for um, had to regroup, go in another direction. They had some problems, so we weren't able to continue the work that I was doing. So I then made my other passion a career and began a gardening business and continued at the museum, but in a different capacity, doing more education and, and teaching. Um, and that's really how the two have come to be a part of my life. I've always, you know, in archeology, span I take stuff out of the ground, and gardening, I put stuff in the ground, and I'm always in the dirt, and I've done it my whole life, and I've been really blessed that that's the case. How would you describe the role of historical horticulture at Plymouth today? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I didn't come to the plantation, to the museum with, um, with that in mind. I, I, was, I had moved to Plymouth. I was deciding to live here. I answered an ad for a gardener. And um, I knew certainly through my professional work what the museum was all about. Um, but I did not know exactly how things would develop for me. And so this has become just sort of a natural path. The way I see historic horticulture is, um, I begin by thinking of this museum and the ground that it occupies sort of 
in layers of landscape. Um, you know, so we have the contemporary landscape, which is very much a reflection of the deforestation that characterizes New England by the middle of the 19th century. This is growth that has come back. It is a landscape that was occupied by the Hornblower family for years, and they created a farm here, um, a series of family homes, and ultimately this amazing museum. So they shaped the landscape. Prior to that, it was, um, from we know from the archaeology that's been done here, it was a place, uh, it was a part of the Wampanoag homeland and an early 17th century English site, the RM site. So it has layers of landscape. I'm interested in all of that. And I'm also interested in education. I love teaching people. I, you know, when I was at the Cape Cod Museum of Natural History for more than 20 years, I was an educator. I was a researcher, but I was an educator. The research was done by volunteers, student interns. And so I've just found a place here that allows me to continue to do that. I think it's really interesting to explore the way that the Wampanoag people shared what they knew of ecology and their horticultural practices with the English, their English neighbors. And we have a way to work that out here on the ground. And um, so that is a, a big interest of mine. What does that look like? It gives us a way of looking at, so I want to, as an anthropologist, look at the relationship between these two neighboring, very different communities. One of the ways that we can do that is what did they learn from each other? And they shared a common thing, and that is they both had to eat and make a living. And what the Wampanoag had to share with the English was absolutely critical for the survival of the colony. And I, I, I think that we can explore some of that right here on the ground in the gardens we create, and that's of interest to me. So we talked about landscape and layers. Right. So for our listeners, I want to take them way back in time, thousands and thousands yeah. of years, even before Wampanoag people were here. Mm -hmm. um, your research has really started to look at the ecological evolution of, of this place, Cape mm -hmm. Cod, southeastern Massachusetts. Can you paint a picture for our listeners of sort of how Cape Cod was formed geologically? We're talking tens of thousands of years ago Absolutely. now. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's funny. Um, when I set out to do archaeology on the Cape, and I was, again, really fortunate because I grew up on the Cape. I wrote my senior honors thesis in college about the Herring River that I grew up on. And I was fortunate to find a position doing museum archaeology in my first year of graduate school. So my, all of my field work has been out on the Cape. So the question then is, what's the relationship to geology? Well, if you want to understand the landscape that people at any given point in time have occupied, you really have to understand where that place has come from. And the Cape is amazingly dynamic. Um, it's a landform that's only about 23, 24,000 years old. Just as you said, it was created at the tail end of the, of the Ice Age, the Pleistocene. Um, New England saw the world, the globe, saw four major global uh, glacial advances during the Ice Age. The last one began about 75,000 years ago when the climate cooled and the ice descended from the north. And by 24,000 years ago, 
mountainous glaciers, the Laurentide Ice Sheet had reached as far south as Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, curving off through the Block Islands down to Long Island. Here, standing right where we are, was a mountain of ice, uh, more than a mile thick. Um, at that time, the sea was almost 400 feet lower than at present because the world's water was tied up in these mountainous continental glaciers. Uh, the landscape of the Continental Shelf, you could walk from here to George's Bank. You could walk from here to Florida. That was a landscape of open pine forest, bogs, wetlands. Um, it was a landscape crossed by mammoths, mastodons, giant ground sloths, the fossils of which are sometimes dragged up by um, scallop draggers out on Nantucket Shoals today. We had some of those at the Museum on the Cape. So it was a landscape that was entirely different than it is today. And I like to say it's a landscape that's constantly, always in a state of becoming. Um, I mentioned the sea was 400 feet lower than at present at the height of glaciation 24,000 years ago. At that point, the globe began to warm, the climate warmed and the ice began to retreat. So from that further southern extent at Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, it began to inch back. It was in the area of Cape Cod Bay by 18 or 19,000 years ago, and then north of and back in the St. Lawrence 10,000 years ago. So what's happening as the ice is melting, all of that water returns to the ocean basin. So for the last 12,000 years, the sea has risen dramatically. Today, the sea is rising about a foot per century. So truly, it was glaciation first, the climate warming and the sea rising that has shaped the landscape of southeastern Massachusetts and the Cape. At the height of glaciation, when we were under this continental ice, all of the plants and animals that we're familiar with today were south of us in special environments called glacial refugia. And as the climate warmed and the ice retreated, these plants and animals began a slow northward migration. So it's a landscape that has, is constantly in a state of change. Do humans tend to follow animal migratory patterns? So could one assume that if animals are migrating, people are going to migrate into this area at the same time? And that has been one of the prevailing and guiding questions in American archaeology as archaeologists, anthropologists have tried to understand where the ancestors of the Wampanoag and other native people came from. One of the prevailing theories was that when the Bering Strait land bridge was exposed more than 12,000 years ago, across that landform came small migratory bands of hunting people following herds of animals, as you've suggested. We now know that there's archaeological evidence that there are people here in, in North America and South America, native peoples, earlier than that. Now the question is, from where and at what point did they come? I heard a, uh, an indigenous speaker on Sunday, and she said she likes to say that her people have been here for, from time immemorial. And I think that's a really great way of putting it, because we don't know when people from the ancestors of the Wampanoag first came. We just know that this is where they were. And to me, that's a very important point. But you're absolutely right. The change in the environment really was followed by um, 
the people that lived here. So when the sea is rising, this, the coast is eroded and erosion destroys one landform and it creates another. And along those landforms, behind these barrier beaches are very rich estuaries, salt marshes and bays. And there are attracted uh, na native people, the ancestors of the Wampanoag. So whether people are following migrating animals or moving northward um, or inland as the sea rose and salt marshes and things are created, people are always sort of mapping onto the most productive places in the landscape to be. So when we find those places, we find the earliest people. What does archaeology tell us about the origins of horticulture for the ancestors mm. of the Wampanoag? That is one of the areas that um, a lot of attention is, is given to um, more recently. So the, the, one of the primary foods that we look at, um, indigenous plants, is corn. And we know that, you know, eight or 9,000 years ago, down in Mexico, teosinte, a grass, was beginning to be domesticated by people in that region, and it ultimately became corn as we know it today. So we look at, um, traditionally, people always thought in terms of an agricultural revolution, and that was true globally. People talked about, oh, they learned, people learned in the past how to domesticate plants and animals, and that radically changed life ways. It was revolutionary. But now what we're seeing is that it was a much longer, slower process. And what we're seeing is that it didn't all happen at once, that it involved other foods other than here in the New World, corn. We know about beans and squash, but there were lots of other things, um, things like sunflowers, lamb's quarters, and other small nuts and things like that that produce lots of fats and oils that were important. So what I like to think is that how do we know what people were growing and when? So we have the archaeological evidence and those are the things that we can find. Now things that are organic, like nuts and seeds and things, decay in the acidic soil unless they become burned or charred. And when we archaeologists find them, they can use radiocarbon dating to determine the age when that corn was burned. So we know now in looking at southern New England that, that we find around 1200 AD, we're beginning to find actual burned corn kernels in archaeological sites, Wampanoag sites. We've done that, I've done that out on the Cape at a number of sites. So we have some archaeological evidence that tells us certainly by around 1200 AD, Wampanoag people are growing gardens with corn. Then we have the actual descriptions from European visitors who begin to arrive um, in the late 15th century and in the, in the 17th, 17th century and 16th century. So for instance, Samuel D. Champlain traveled down the coast of New England in 1605 and again in 1606, making very detailed maps and in those maps, on those maps, he shows the homes of indigenous people often surrounded by gardens of corn, beans, and squash. And then we have descriptions of that, for instance, at Nauset in the summer of 1605. 
So I want to shift for a minute to talk about the other community that was settling on this mm. landscape around this time, as you say, the early 17th century. That, of course, is the English colonists mm -hmm. that history often calls the pilgrims, this mm -hmm. first generation of English men, women, and children settling here in what they called Plymouth Colony, the Wampanoag called Patuxet. How was their agricultural approach different from their Wampanoag neighbors and those of other indigenous communities in the mm. area? So just as I'm interested in the life ways of indigenous horticulture, the people, so how did Wampanoag people organize themselves around agriculture? What did that involve? How did they do it? How was it productive? What did it mean for them on a daily basis? I like to look at the English in the same way. And that's relatively new to me. And it began for me um, back in the mid-90s when I was um, doing some excavation out on the Cape in an area called Wings Island. And in part of that survey work, we were studying, examining the property of John Wing, who was the first English colonist to live in that part of the Cape in the 1650s. And so I began to think about what would his life look like on the ground, you know, how was he living and how might I, as an archaeologist, find, what, what am I going to find that would tell me about his life? So I began to do a lot of investigation to 17th century um, horticulture, agriculture, and um, read a lot of primary source material um, and found that English life peasant life in the countryside was really organized around an agricultural calendar. So you had a civic calendar, you had a church calendar, and you had an agricultural calendar. And you had people like Thomas Tusser, who wrote almost like what you might call a farmer's almanac, that's, that recorded for a farmer what he should be doing in his garden, on his farm, at given points in the year, month by month what a good husbandman or farmer would be doing. And there are deep patterns of life that cover generations that the English of the countryside would have been learning how, what happens at a given time. And, and this becomes not just a way of doing, but it becomes a way of organizing sort of local domestic activity how children are taught and nurtured and brought along, what, they, what, what is expected of them. And so the English had for themselves a deep body of learning. For a lot of people, it was an oral tradition, just like Wampanoag learning was oral tradition because not everybody could write, read. And that way of learning structured life. So the two communities, side by side, each had ways of doing things that were as important to their learning about their cultures as it was to just getting food by planting. The English, um, the Wampanoag people are known for the companion planting, growing corn, beans, and squash together. The English had separate fields that they planted in rotation. And by the time the English were thinking about and then coming to New England, they were planting their crops in a rotation um, to try to, so that they would use their, their animals, where they would graze their animals, the animals would feed, they would fertilize that field, they would ship, be shifted to another field, 
The crops then would be shifted following the animals, so there was that kind of a rotation. The crops that the English were go growing were um, field peas, which was sort of like a lentil. They were growing barley, they were growing wheat, and they were beginning to grow turnips to try to return nitrogen to the soil, to try to improve the soil for fertility. But one of the problems was the soils in England were really exhausted. And so productivity was low. So there were a lot of things, the fact that firewood, wood was scarce, that with an increasing population, land was scarce and the land was no longer as productive. There was a lot of things that drove migration to the new world. And when the English arrived here, they found plenty of wood and they write about the Plymouth colonists, the pilgrims, write about the soil that they found out on the Cape as being thick, black, rich, lusty soil. Um, it must have been almost a paradise in terms of what was available to them. And so that would have, um, that would have been very different. But the approaches, and, and the other big, big approach, obviously, was the fact that English farmers had draft animals and plows. And so that, that whole way of organizing fields was completely different than a Wampanoag way of doing it. One of the things that always strikes me about our primary sources as I read them mm -hmm. is the, as you mentioned, the centrality of land, mm -hmm. the centrality of agriculture, um, and thinking about land. And I think we sometimes get caught up in the idea of land as, as real estate, land yeah. as having property value because you own it. Mm -hmm. How do you, when you read Mort's relation, Good News from New England of Plymouth Plantation, as, as a gardener, as a horticulturalist, what do you see in those mm -hmm. conversations? So I begin with the idea first from the Wampanoag perspective. Um, I used to look at things far more materially and economically when I first started graduate school. I, I was very much sort of almost ecologically deterministic. You know, this is the way this worked because here's all the food at the estuary. That's why people are there. My, my thinking now is completely different. I think about homelands and home spaces and things like that. Um, a Wampanoag home space. Um, uh, to me, sense of place has become one of the guiding principles that I'm looking at when I'm thinking about indigenous lifeways. Now, the English then, they, in the places they came from, had a similar sense, but they were uprooted and came here. So, looking at what I said a moment ago, there were two ways that they may have seen this landscape. One was... Look at all the opportunity, look at all the wood, look at the good soil, look at the berries and the, and the fish. I mean, it was always a land of plenty in the descriptions we read that. But the other thing we read is the sense that it was open because it wasn't improved in an English sense, right? So that there was a justification. It wasn't being used the way they used land, so therefore there was a justification in their usurpation of land. So there's that element, I think, that becomes important. Then the other element is the fact that for families that had multiple male children, it, land was a real issue. 
and being without land back in England, and here was the opportunity for, for people to have land and ownership, ultimately, if you were a free man in the, in the colony. So I think that there was, there was opportunity and a sense of optimism in that look at what is here. That's sort of what I, I get. Um, yeah. You talk also about how you now look at these sources thinking about home space. Yeah. And one of the things I'm just thinking sitting here talking to you is they call this place New England. And there is a real sense that they that these early generation of colonists are trying to create home space in what they perceive to be an open uh, an open form landscape. Right. So rather than and they they don't necessarily always know what they're looking at. So they might not see Wampanoag home space for what it is, but they're also looking at it to say, I want to. Make, I want to put roots here. I want to put my family here. I want to make home space here. Do you see that as an archaeologist? Yeah, absolutely. I, and that is a great... Just before you came in, I was actually... I had listened to a program that I'm sitting in on at Bridgewater State University on um, indigenous peoples. And, and it's a, a seminar that's going through the fall. And I listened to it this weekend. And I was just making notes about that. And the idea that Part of what the English were about was recreating an England for themselves here, right? They wanted to recreate a place. They didn't want to lose their English identity. That was a concern when they were in, 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 um, in Holland, right? That they would lose that. And I found a great paper recently, and I, I don't, I'm going to forget the, the woman's name so I can find it later. But she was looking at the 17th century texts, like the English housewife and some of the other books that would have been available. And her point in them, the point she made in the paper, which was really great, was that these things like herbals, and particularly the English housewife, they were important for letting you know what you had to do to be successful domestically. But they were much more important on the frontier, where you were in danger of losing your English identity in reifying that sense of Englishness, this is the way we do this, this is the way we cook this, this is the way we organize our house, we are English, this is the way we do this. Because on this frontier, so far from home, I think I often forget that when, you know, when you realize they were at the edge of the known world. I began to think about that when I was thinking about John Wayne. When he went out to what is now Brewster in 1656, he was at the edge of the known world. On the other side of Payne's Creek was the community of Sacquatucket, Wampanoag people, and his nearest English neighbors were to the west, miles. That's something that it's hard to imagine and you, and you can then appreciate this point of view of this author who's saying those things that you could hold on to that made you English and kept, and that could be something that, like a lifeboat from keeping you from losing your cultural identity. That's something I hadn't thought of before. And I just, I'll, I'll get that paper for you because I think you'd like it. Well, and that brings me to my next question, which is the fact that in spite of their strong desire to hold on to an English identity, coming back to agriculture, 
they had to let that go. Can you talk about how they adapted to yeah. their agriculture to being here in New England? That becomes, so that is something I'm really interested right now. So they're taught by Tisquantum and Samoset how to plant in hills, corn, beans, squash, fertilizing the hills with herring. Um, this is what they learn. The things that they plant have come either through accidental discovery at Cornhill, the corn, and what might have been given to them by their neighbors in trade or just as gift, the beans, the squash. So they learn, I think it was absolutely critical in those first years for them to plant like that. Number one, they had just lived for nine years in Holland. Many of them were weavers by trade anyways. I'm not exactly sure how deep the agricultural knowledge was in the, in the pilgrim community. I think women had far more botanical knowledge than men. Women kept the kitchen gardens and the herb gardens, and they would have done that even in the city when they were in, in, in Leiden. Men would have known how to do the basic sort of farming that was required of them, but what they learned from their Wampanoag neighbors was so important mm -hmm. to just getting something to eat after that first winter. So I believe that the first gardens, the first field gardens that were created here were gardens of corn, beans, squash. They grew barley not very successfully. They had trouble with wheat. Um, they had trouble with their own peas. Um, but I, and I think they persisted in that. They needed to persist with the, bar, with the barley because they wanted to be able to brew their own beer because there was still a fear that what if the water isn't good? Um, and that was part of household practice back in England. In places where the water wasn't good, you, you, you brewed beer and that killed microbes and it gave you something to drink that wouldn't make you sick. So there was still that aspect of cultural knowledge and way of doing. We have to grow the barley because we, even though this water looks wonderful, we, this is what, the way we do it. So there's that. I believe there was exactly what you described, a tension between the way we always have done it and what we need to do right now to survive. So what I'd like to do, what I've tried to do um, in battling the woodchucks and the rabbits that kind of wreaked habit in the garden this year, I want to explore in the field, on the ground, how that would have worked out, how they planted that. And because what happens is that after a period of time with the introduction of draft animals and plows, traditional ways of farming return and, and they don't ever really go away, but they, that's the shift that's made. However, eight row flint, native indigenous flint corn is continued to be grown by New England farmers right into the 1850s when finally they give up on it as a commercial crop just because it can't compete with the corn that's now being hybridized. So, and interestingly, I read a biography of Abraham Lincoln this past winter, and he only wrote one biographical sketch, and he wrote a, a piece about himself before his first political campaign to introduce himself to his the constituency. And in it, he describes being a boy on the frontier with his father, and his father was planting corn, and his job was to walk behind his father 
and put pumpkin seeds in the corn hills. And I thought that was amazing because that wasn't something that had then come down from New England out to the Kentucky frontier or wherever they were. That was the proximity of that community with indigenous neighbors who were sharing what they had, the pumpkins, the beans and things with the arriving Americans at that point who were planting like their nearest neighbors. So I think there was always a sharing and a borrowing when native, when, when indigenous peoples and first the English and then the Anglo-Americans, Americans were settling the landscape. Um, you look at that in material culture, the, the baskets become incorporated into English um, um, households. I'm really interested, I think, um, and, and maybe David Landon and UMass Boston's work downtown will, is providing some light on that. To what extent were native vessels, clay vessels, becoming used in English houses? The proximity of these communities side by side, I think, was much more real than we can see in primary sources and see archaeologically. And what I'm really interested in is what information was shared between the women of those two communities. Because the Wampanoag women were the planters. I believe the English women had the greatest botanical knowledge. And it would be really interesting to see, and I don't even know how to reason that out, but to, to what I wonder about the interaction of those two elements of the population. I think at the very least, we think about observation, the power of observation. Absolutely. We know from Mort's relation that after the uh, Poconoke, Satcham, uh, Massasoit, or Usumiquin, allies Poconoke with Plymouth Colony in March of 1621, yeah. <clears throat> says to then Governor John Carver and the um, soon-to-be Governor William Bradford that in the following week he would return with his women and families to plant across the brook. So we know just from Mort's relation from that small passage Absolutely. that the early families who have survived the first winter who are cultivating maize for the first time are not only doing it by instruction from Chisquantum, but they also have the opportunity to observe Wampanoag families across Town Brook. Yeah. And for our listeners who um, have never been to visit us in Plymouth, Town Brook is not a large body of water. Uh, it is um, mildly tidal. You can wade across it. You can wade across it, especially today. The landscape has changed a lot um, yeah. with the industrialization of the 18th and 19th century, but it's not a large body no. of water. And what we see from land divisions later in the 1620s is that families, particularly the Howlands, their land allotment is right next to that piece which was given to Habamak, a Panese or warrior advisor yeah. of the Massasoit who was living in Plymouth Colony, almost as a permanent resident, yeah. as the eyes and ears of the Massasoit. So I think observation, especially with agriculture, is a, big, is a big piece of the learning curve yeah. here. And I think what you're saying is really interesting because we think about frontier spaces, but we also think about, I think about frontier in terms of time that there's a frontier in time when cultures are new to one another, Absolutely. are adapting to being with one another. And then as everyone settles into these new routines for the English colonists yeah. by the 1630s, you have a massive migration of colonists, right. particularly to, the, to Boston and the North Shore. The impact of that is going to be irreparable yeah. for indigenous people. But there is this decade of Plymouth Colony where the English population is small, the indigenous population right. is 
uh, on equal footing in many yeah. ways with this relatively weak developing European power. Right. And so I think that's a very interesting moment in time to think about frontier and also the physical space. And one of the things as I think about frontier space that always comes back to me, especially right now, you know, 2020, we're living mm-hmm. in a time of climate change. We talk wow. about climate change all the time. And the English and the Wampanoag were living in a moment of climate change as well. Absolutely. And that had that had a pretty significant impact on their agricultural practices, didn't it? Absolutely. And and so there's a number of things. First of all, they were right in the middle of the, what we now know as the Little, Little Ice Age. They could observe things happening around them that hadn't happened before, like the freezing of the Thames and, and the deep cold that, was, that, that, that they, when talking to Native people here, tell them that it hadn't been like that in years. Eight-row flint corn is, has a shorter growing season. It's adapted to a short growing season, which is really interesting. Agricultural intensification amongst indigenous communities in southern New England happens just as the Little Ice Age is beginning to happen, which is so counterintuitive. But it can happen because eight-row flint corn is adapted to a short growing season. What also happens, though, is those indigenous communities to the north in Maine and southern Canada that were growing corn could no longer get their corn to ripen. And that then caused people from the north to come down and raid corn from southern New England. And we have that in the the visit to Boston Harbor, where it's recorded that the people there tell the colonists, ye Tarantines come from the north and take our corn. So there's that implication. When there's a stress within the indigenous communities, growing seasons are shortened, the corn which was grown successfully in the north is no longer being grown. There's that kind of attention that exists before the English arrive. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, there's that as an issue. And then to what extent did the English even know? They had an idea that the place they were coming to should have been milder, right? Because latitudes are supposed to be equal. So this should be like France, this should be like Spain. And it was cold and it was wet. And they had, after the initial very cold first part of the first winter, it was not that bad the rest of the spring, but it was right in the middle of the Little Ice Age and would have affected everything that went on throughout that period. You couldn't have picked a worse time to do this. As a gardener, as a horticulturalist, someone interested and knowledgeable about ecology and sort of the impact of human beings on landscape and vice versa, the impact of landscape and place on human beings, what role do you see museums like ours filling for people? Especially right now, we're in the middle of of COVID-19. We're sitting here with masks on. what role do you think landscape and open spaces like our museum can have for our modern communities? So a museum with outdoor grounds like we have, I think has been great this spring and summer to give people a chance, a place to go 
and with their families and not worry so much about the indoors and all the stresses and everything else that they're reading about. To me, I started back at work here at the museum um, before we, for two months before we were able to open. And there were a lot of days when it was just a few of us on these grounds and it wasn't the same kind of place. I was so happy to see people coming and returning and laughing and smiling and saying hello. That I think is just that, that, that is an important role that museums play. I've always loved being in museums because they are freeing. Um, they give people a chance to learn in ways that are outside the traditional modes of learning where you sit at a desk and a teacher instructs you or nowadays you have the computer or whatever that stuff is. And uh, it's just great. So I like that part of it. Then there's the content that museums can share with people. So the whole issue of climate change is real and the climate is changing. And we're seeing it. This will be, uh, last month was the hottest September on record. Um, these are things that we hear about in the news, but what does it mean for us, you know? And one of the things I've appreciated in my work in archeology span and, 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 and geology is the, the sense of time, the depths of time that we work with, the arc of time and the story that is told. Um, to understand Cape Cod today, you have to look at the last period of global cooling. To understand what's happening to the Cape today, you have to look at the way the sea is rising. The sea is rising a foot per century. It will continue to rise. That rise may be exacerbated by global warming. That's changing the landscape. We did an exhibit at the, at the Museum on the Cape a number of years ago, and we recreated the landscape in... Um, graphic form panels, maps, that show Cape Cod 12,000, 10,000, 8,000, 6,000 years ago, and then we had a geologist predict what it would look like 2,000 years in the future. If the sea continues to rise the way it is rising, if it's exacerbated, the Cape won't exist in another 5,000 years. That's a reality. Things change, and I think the story of that we can do in archaeology and history and museums is talk about change in ways maybe that are real but not threatening, and 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 don't have to necessarily be politicized. That it can be seen as part of natural history, and we, as a species, are part of that natural history. So, living on this planet, we shape and affect the planet and we in turn are effect, affected by the planet. To me, one of the things that I've, I've always had a sense of cultural ecology, and that is that, that I believe cultures are shaped by the places they inhabit, in turn they shape the places that they occupy. The sense of homeland, home space, and that kind of much more difficult to define what place means to people and behavior has become increasingly important to me. And um, I think that's the greatest part of this story. Um, I think a museum like us, I think we can talk about the Little Ice Age and the difficulty of growing crops in the 17th century um, so that the idea of climate change maybe isn't so foreign, so daunting, and so politicized to a visitor. Um, just giving people the, 
the chance to think a little bit outside their normal frame of reference. You know, what was it like for a child, Wampanoag or English in the 17th century? How did they see the world that they came from? Um, that, these are things I think a, the museum, a museum can do. And I think, too, there's a really nice comfort in knowing that as we look back, as you say, the long arc of time, mm-hmm. human beings have experienced periods of upheaval, cultural, political, environmental, before. Absolutely. And by looking back at the long arc of time, even looking at something as, as seemingly straightforward as how did they plant their crops, right. we can see how humans adapt and change over time, whether it's adapting to a new political environment, an agricultural environment, new knowledge, right. changing the way you think about a community of people right. or a practice that you thought you've known for your entire life, something like planting corn. So I think one of the things about a living history museum is, yes, you can come and see what a, a moment in time looked like, but in doing so, you can also take comfort and say, as a species, as a nation, as a community, we've been here before. Absolutely. And, and there are, you know, that, that's a great point that, you know, as a, human beings are adaptable and, you know, this is a hard space, we'll get through this. There's also things that we learn that, and particularly around, because my focus right now has been agriculture, um, the whole idea of companion planting. What Champlain saw in 1605 in those gardens, the corn, the beans, the squash, but then the Jerusalem artichoke, the lamb's quarters, the sunflowers, all together, that didn't just arise in a revolution a revolutionary change that when we talk about an agricultural revolution. No, we're now seeing that that was a long-standing practice. Wampanoag peoples had been adapted to coastal environments and those plants for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a great new study that's been done at the university, one of the universities um, down, I think, University of Florida, but I'm not sure what, what campus, um, and what they were looking at is sunflowers and companion planting. And they found and were able to demonstrate in field studies that when that sunflowers attract um, a great number of beneficial insects, pollinators and predaceous insects, to garden spaces. And they were able to measure the actual density of insects per square meter in these, in these gardens. And so you look at the fact that you had these beautiful companion gardens of corn and beans and squash and sunflowers, and they're so gorgeous to look at, but everything played a role ecologically. And now when we begin to use botanical science and ecology and we begin to pick that apart and examine it, wow, there was a reason beyond just aesthetics for doing that, it made sense ecologically. So our investigations, our experimentation, and our work can teach us some lessons. And companion planting seems to be a pretty good idea. Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, 
Join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is a product of the Center for 17th Century Studies at Plymouth Patuxent Museums, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley and Hilary Goodnow. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.